You can't sing a song like that and not just be overwhelmed with God's goodness. You know, reminded of the first temptation. The temptation in the Garden of Eden was a temptation to doubt God's goodness. That's really what was at work there, to doubt his word, to doubt his goodness. And those two are always together because in God's word we find his goodness. His goodness in and of himself and his goodness towards his creatures. And so we just give praise to God this morning that we have his word, we have his promises, we have many great assurances of his goodness. If you would at this time go with me in your Bibles to Romans 12. We are in verses 9 to 21. Romans chapter 12 verses 9 to 21. You know, since beginning Romans 12 a few weeks ago, we've been talking about what it looks like to live the Christian life. Not in the abstract, as I said last week, not in vague generalities, but in the particularities of daily life. This is the Christian life on the ground. This is the Christian life lived out in everyday practice. And it's really easy for us to fall into the the vagueness of life. And so God graciously gives us these very uh, specific points where we are called to live it out. These very specific uh, instructions and directives where he helps us understand what does this look like when you go out, you wake up in the morning, you begin to speak, you begin to think, you begin to act. What does it look like to live as those, back to Romans 6, who have died with Christ, who've been buried with Christ, and who have been raised to new life in Christ by his spirit. So let me just say, we need this help. We desperately need this concrete instruction. We need the theological truths. By the way, everything that we have in God's word, it's there because we need it. It is there because it is intended to make us complete, fully equipped for every good work. And so we need both the the sort of high theology, we need these doctrines, we need these truths, we need to understand what God is doing in redemptive history, Romans 9 through 11. But we also need to understand what it looks like practically to live as Christ in the world, as little Christs, as the tongue and hands and feet of Christ in our world, in our families and in our church. So we're grateful to God that we get this kind of detailed instruction. In verses 1 to 2 of chapter 12, we got the basic principles. This is basic Christian living. And it involves two big ideas, presenting our bodies as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, and being transformed by the renewal of our minds rather than being conformed to the world. And isn't it interesting as we looked at those first two verses entering into this practical section that really that covers our bodies and our minds. So our bodies and our minds are presented as being under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We uh, 
in the way we carry out our, our behavior with our bodies. We are presenting them constantly, our tongues, our eyes, our hands, our feet, always being presented as though we were in God's holy temple, in the holy of holies, presenting ourselves to God. Our thoughts, our tongues, our hands and feet, everything about us being presented to God. And all the while, our minds are being constantly infused and saturated with God's holy word. So in mind and body, we fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We could have entitled verses one to two that way. Mind and body under Christ's lordship. I think we also could have entitled verses one to two, relationship with God. What does it look like? There's much talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This has become a bit of a slogan. People use that, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, what exactly does that mean? It means what we find in Romans 12, verses one to two. It is to walk with God. That's another phrase we use a lot, walking with God. We saw it with Enoch. We saw it with Noah. We saw it with Abraham. To walk before me and be blameless, God tells Abraham. What is it to walk with God? It is to be in our minds and our bodies under his lordship, presenting ourselves to him and not being conformed to the world. So that's where we started, verses one to two. And then in verses three to eight, we saw how a renewed mind plays out in the church. So we get these high-minded principles or these fundamental basics, and then we come up from that and we say, okay, what does it look like to have this kind of mindset in the church among God's people? We perceive within the church the unity and diversity that exists within the body of Christ, that God is the one who has graciously given us different functions and gifts, and that we are to use those gifts for the common good. That's what it means to think rightly about the church. That's what it means to evidence a transformed life within the church. So where there's disunity and criticism and all kinds of divisions, where there is selfishness and a lack of use of gifts, where there's envy and pride, conceit, all of these things demonstrate the lack of a transformed mind, a transformed life by a renewed mind. They demonstrate a lack of presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. I've often said this before. I, you know, having grown up in church, I sat through a lot of business meetings. It's so funny. Uh, a business meeting really is a different kind of worship service, I think. should be seen that way. But these business meetings we would have monthly, that's when everybody got to be sinful. That's when, you know, during the worship service and other times, you walked in the spirit. But when you walked in the church in a business meeting, you were free to just be fleshy because it was Robert's rules of order or whatever, and you were, you were doing it like a company. You're doing it like an organization. You're doing it like a, a business. This is different. Of course it's not. And I used to think, I remember especially in seminary, I used to think about passages like this that we are always to present our bodies to the Lord as a sacrifice and how that transforms the way we love each other, how that transforms the way we speak to each other, relate to each other, and always perceiving 
ourselves in the way we read in verses 3 to 8. Last week, we started looking at this big list of instructions in verses 9 to 21, this big chunk, which really does constitute one big section. Uh, So that's why I've treated it in various parts, is because it is one big list of instructions from the apostle. And I've entitled this section, A Transformed Life in Practice. But I think it could also be known in this way, a non-worldly life. You know, one of the things we hear often, and we should hear often, is don't be worldly. Don't be worldly. Don't be worldly. Don't be worldly. But what in the world does that mean? I mean, we, we, we know that, and we know we're not to be conformed to this world, as we saw in those first two verses. But what in the world does it look like to not be worldly? And I think in the context, the answer comes to us in the, this list of instructions. Verses 9 through 21 show us in the clearest, most specific, detailed terms what it means not to be worldly. Or you could say it this way, the opposite of what we read in verses 9 to 21 is a great starting point for understanding worldliness. When we do not evidence these characteristics, we are showing ourselves worldly insofar as we do not. Last week in part one, we covered verses nine to 13. So we just dealt with those first set of verses. And these verses give us four directives. And if you weren't here last week, you can jot these down quickly if you'd like. But the four that we covered last week from those opening verses were love truly, serve intensely, live vertically and provide generously. So that was part one. And today in part two, we're going to cover verses 14 to 16. And Lord willing, we'll finish up next week when we come to verses 17 to 21. You can see as you're going through these verses that there is a clear transition in verse 17. And verses 17 to 21 really do hold together. So we're going to treat these middle verses today, verses 14 to 16. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Romans chapter 12, we're going to start in the first verse and we'll go all the way up to verse 21, but our text for today is verses 14 to 16. This is God's word. It is holy perfect and profitable. It is powerful, powerful to those who hear, understand, and by God's grace, do it. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, 
are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. As I said last week, one of my favorite verses in Romans. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then for our text today, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And then for next week, we'll look at these. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can go ahead and be seated. These are such rich, rich verses. As I encouraged you last week, this would be a good text to memorize because it will help form a grid, an applicational grid as we go out and interact in our daily lives. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his blessing. Let's ask that he would give us understanding, that he would give me clarity and all of us conviction and encouragement in his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have time together like this to sit under your word. Lord, you have been so gracious to us already to be here this morning to sing these praises, to meditate on these words. Father, our hearts are in different places and with all of us there is some level of distraction, some level of preoccupation, some level of not being here now. So God, we ask that you would help us in that, each of us, that you would meet each of us where we are. Father, we thank you that you are so kind to sinners. You sent your son to die for us while we were still sinners. We have done nothing to earn your grace. We did nothing to earn your electing grace. We did nothing to earn your sending Christ grace. We did nothing to earn the effectual call that made us Christians and the regeneration of our hearts, justification before your face. Lord, all is by your grace. And so we just... We fall on your grace this morning. We praise you, God, that you are so good to us, so kind to us through Jesus. We know that it is for your glory. It is for the renown of your holy name through Christ. It is for the glory of Christ. God, we pray that what we do here this morning would be to that end. And we ask that our time now in your word would be fruitful. 
Father, that this would just not be another sermon, another time together, another text, another hour, but Lord, that this would be a time where your spirit powerfully transforms us. God, we we need you desperately, so we pray now that you would help us through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this morning, we are going to look at three more directives given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And, And that's important. You know, you'll hear me say a lot, Paul says, Paul says, it's funny, my son Jake reminds me of that when I talk with him during lunch about the sermon. He says, well, you said the word Paul a lot. (laughs) And so we we are, of course, Paul wrote this. Uh, But let us remember that Paul wrote these words. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as Paul often says, uh, he speaks for the Lord, specifically uh, to the Corinthians. He, He speaks for the Lord. He speaks As a prophet, he speaks as an apostle. He speaks the very words of God. He is the mouthpiece of God as he writes these words, binding on the consciences of his readers then and now. And so we come to these directives and we recognize that their source is God. Yes, Paul writes it, but they are the directives that God demands of his people. God calls us to this life while we have breath in this world. So here they are for today, three directives. You can see them up here on the screen if you want to write them down. First, bless unexpectedly, verse 14, we'll look at that. Relate sympathetically. And then number three, think humbly. We see those in, so we're going to take each verse one at a time uh, as we walk through these this morning. So let's look first at bless unexpectedly. And for that, we're going to look at verse 14. So go with me there. Not a lot of content, but a ton of profound truth here. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. As Christians, we read these words and we say, well, yeah, of course, Of course. And I think especially if you've grown up in church throughout your life, these sorts of ideas get tossed around and become so very familiar to us. Familiarity does breed contempt, or at least neglect. We we become so familiar with these glorious truths. I, I, you know, it's, I always love to talk to someone who came to faith in Christ later in life as an adult and, and they just did not know anything about Christ. They come to these things, they're, they're just totally enamored. They're, it, obviously, we do think it is better that someone be raised in the faith. We see all of the benefits of that, but, but it is neat to see how God will radically save an adult who's never heard these things and they come to them freshly, and they feel the weight of them. They see the glory of them immediately. Sometimes for us, the familiarity gets in the way of that. But these sorts of ideas we read here in verse 14 get tossed around so much. This is kind of Christianity 101. And this familiarity poses a problem for us for two reasons. Two reasons. First, we forget how radical and revolutionary this idea was and still is. This was not the sort of thing you would have heard on the streets of Rome or Jerusalem. You would not have heard 
even those who were considered most noble among the pagans, or those who were considered most devout even among the Jews. This is not the sort of thing you would have gotten on the streets. This was radical and revolutionary. Thomas Schreiner points out that in the Greco-Roman world, there were curse tablets that were used to bring curses down on your enemies. That was the norm, not this. Uh, Curse tablets where someone mistreats you, you just kind of curse them. You want to bring down the worst possible thing that you can on that person. And before you go, oh, that's awful. We've all done that. Every single one of us in that room has pulled out our curse tablet and called down curses, whether we've done it explicitly and mindfully or not. We've called down curses on those who have mistreated us. That was the norm then. And that is the norm now. The natural response to being mistreated or persecuted was to curse. Certainly not to bless. Understand it that way. You have curse on one end and bless on the other. It was to curse. Certainly not to bless. The second reason our familiarity poses a problem is that this command is utterly impossible without the Holy Spirit. This is not one of those commands that you hear and you begin to tie your shoes really tight, you put on your jacket, you put on your hat, and you walk out the door ready to go. If it is, that's pretty foolish. This is one of those commands where we fall on our faces before God and we realize how desperate we are for the grace of God the Holy Spirit, how much we need the Holy Spirit in order to live the Christian life. A command like this shows us how much we cannot rely on our own strength if we are to live the Christian life. To what extent are you just really relying on your own strength, your own discipline, your own resolve, your own talents in order to live the Christian life. The extent to which you are doing that is the extent to which you are either falling on your face repeatedly or being deceived into thinking you're further along than you are. We are constantly in need of Christ's strength and a command like this makes that truth pop. Let me give you a quote from John Murray No practical exhortation places greater demands upon our spirits than to bless them that persecute us. What he's saying is this is as difficult as it gets. Notice that Paul doesn't merely say that we shouldn't curse those who persecute us. This is not just about self-control. We think, okay, someone has mistreated me, they've persecuted me in this instance for my Christian faith. They have outright mistreated me, persecuted me because I am a Christian. I'm not gonna curse them. I'm not gonna curse them. We're not talking about mere self-control. No, he goes way beyond that and says that we should bless them. That, of course, means that we are to seek and pray for God's favor on their lives. We're praying for them to be blessed John Calvin says that this is to wish and pray God to render all things prosperous to them. You've just been persecuted 
and you're now praying genuinely, not just in words, not just for a show in pretense, but authentically you are praying that God would heap blessing upon them. And you're speaking words of blessing about them and to them. It's incredible. This way of life is nothing less than the life of Jesus Christ. We're asking, what is this? This is not a mere ethic. This is the manifestation of the life of God in human flesh. This is God with us on the move. This is God with us acting in the world. This is the life of Christ. We need the life of Christ. We don't need ethics. We need the life of Christ in which all ethics are yes and right and true. Nothing less than Christ's life in us. This is what he taught his disciples during his earthly ministry. Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 27 to 28, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So this is what he taught, but this is also what he modeled so perfectly as he was hanging on the cross. Who has been abused more than Christ? Who's been mistreated more than Christ? Who has been persecuted more than the Christ? None of us for sure and no one else. What did he do? What did the Christ do as he hung on the cross? What did incarnate deity do when he hung on the cross? Luke 23, 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. They're concerned with who's gonna get this dying man's clothes. They've brutally tortured him, and now he is dying, and he prays for them. So we see it in his teaching, we see it in his own life as he modeled it, we see it as he empowered it in the lives of his followers from the very beginning. So we get the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen in Acts chapter seven, verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out. As he's being stoned to death, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He's able to be in the process of being murdered painfully. And and from the, the deepest recesses of his heart, he is able genuinely in the power of the Holy Spirit to pray for them to be blessed eternally, that they would be forgiven and renewed and made one with Christ that their sins would be forgiven them. As we are told throughout the New Testament, persecution is to be expected for believers. We expect persecution, or at least we ought to. We ought to expect in this world to be persecuted. This is the norm. But what does the world expect us to do when we are persecuted? 
What are they expecting from us when they mistreat us and persecute us? Well, with their natural minds, they certainly do not expect us to bless them. What do those people in Washington making unjust laws or giving out unjust executive orders that marginalize Christians or that lead to the persecution of Christians or that will result in that or even now do? What do they not expect from us? They expect battles in court, as they should. And they expect us to say this is unjust, just as the early Christian martyrs and apologists did to the Roman emperors. But what they do not expect from us is that we bless them, that we truly pray for them, bless them in how we speak to them, if given the opportunity, and in how we speak about them. We bless. Of course they do not expect us to do this. They expect us to be militant. They expect a fight. And we give them a fight, and we often should. But what we must not neglect is the words of our king, that we are to bless them, to pray for them, to treat them as friends and beloved ones. This is the way of Christ in the world. This is the way of a citizen of heaven. Let me just say this. This is one of the most powerful evangelistic forces on the planet. This is the the most powerful means that the world has of seeing the glory of Christ in his people, because this is so unexpected. It is so counter-cultural. It is so otherworldly. It is so supernatural. This makes Christ shine. This makes Christ glorious in the world. So if you want to make Christ shine, do this. You want to make Christ look real, look good, look powerful, do this. Go out into the world. Don't be surprised when you are persecuted. And when you are, do what the world does not expect. Bless them, pray for them, love them. Let me give you a final implication. You know, as we see our country becoming more and more antagonistic to Christianity, and we do, uh, increasingly, exponentially, we see our country becoming more and more anti-Christian, antagonistic to Christians in various ways, culturally, legally. As we see this more and more, we need to remember that as Americans, we are called to do this, what Jesus is commanding here, we are called to do this on such a tiny scale. What is it for us to do this? With the, the little, little ways that we in this country are persecuted. We whine and we moan and we grumble and complain about all the ways that we are persecuted. Woe are we, American Christians. Woe are we. And out of that, 
we fail to do this. While there are others in the world being beheaded, burned, crucified, families massacred, who still are called to do this? And we whine. We whine. We are called to do this with so much less sacrifice, with so much less energy in practice than many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. So let's keep that in mind. The next time we curse those who persecute us, the next time we curse those who mistreat us, who hate us, who make unjust laws against us and our churches, and so forth. So number one, we see Jesus through the Apostle Paul commanding us here to bless unexpectedly. And secondly, we see that we are to relate sympathetically. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Here it is a little difficult to tell who Paul has in mind. We're sandwiched at this point between verse 14 where unbelievers are clearly in view and then verse 16 where fellow Christians are clearly in view. We got the reference in verse 16 to one another. So it's, it's a little difficult here to determine who Paul has in mind. We're, we're sandwiched between these two groups. And I think the general language here is intentional. This extends to other human beings in general. This is what we are to do. This is how we are to operate among other human beings in the world. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We do this in our families. We do this in our neighborhoods. We do this in our workplaces, in our social spheres, in our private life and in our public life. We do this among our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the way we are to operate. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We know that this is particularly the case among God's people. As the Apostle Peter writes to believers in 1 Peter 3, 8, this is what he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now this is a beautiful list of how we are to operate among believers, but I want you to see it's a package deal. All of these things are kind of intertwined. I don't want you to see it as, as, as a, a bunch of puzzle pieces kind of linked together so that you can take each one off. I want you to see it as a ball of, of yarn. It's woven, different threads of yarn woven together. This is a package deal. These things are one together, different but united. These Gentle and loving characteristics are presented together. And right in the middle of them is this notion of sympathy. Sympathy. It is the idea of fellow feeling. You trace the meaning of the word sympathy. It goes back to ancient Greece. The word means fellow feeling. Or feeling with someone. To feel with is to enter into the experiences of others to come alongside of them and to be impacted truly, genuinely, 
in line with the way they are impacted. It goes along with what we read back in verse 13, where Paul says that we are to share or take part in. Now it says contribute, but I think a better way to render that is to share or take part in or even participate in the needs of the saints. And as I said last week, the imagery is of us making the needs of the saints our own. In the context of verse 13, I think that's what's going on here. There's a similar idea at work here. We are to share in the feelings and experiences of others. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says it this way. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. By the way, that's interesting because that implies the whole congregation that the whole congregation is brought to the suffering or the rejoicing of one single member. Imagine if you had a church of of 10,000 people and one member experiences a tragedy where there's great grief, there's great suffering, there's great weeping. What Paul is quite literally calling for here is that the whole body joins in that, weeps, with that person. What an incredible community of love the church is. And here, those feelings or experiences are presented both positively and negatively. Rejoice with those rejoicing, weep with those weeping. Now, we all know that we go through different experiences in the Christian life. We, we have a lot of different things that we experience. And as James 5, 3 says, is anyone among you suffering let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. We've all been at both of those places, right? You've been in moments where you are suffering and you're, you're feeling pain in some way. Maybe it's physical pain that causes you emotional distress, or maybe it is emotional pain, psychological pain, mental pain, whatever you want to call it, but you're, you are suffering. Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You've been in the car before, you're driving, you just feel good, you're just cheerful. You're just, you're just happy in life. You look outside, it's beautiful, you just, everything just is great. You just you start singing, start singing to the Lord. Just start praising him. What Paul is saying is that we are to be right there with one another in these experiences, not at a distance, not focused on self, not insensitive and detached. That is not love. Insensitivity and detachment is not love. It's hard-heartedness. It's a lot of things, but it's not love. I like the way John Stott summarizes it. Love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them, sings with them, and suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears, and feels solidarity with them, whatever their mood. How would this change the way we relate to our fellow Christians? Now, let me just say this. This raises a question for us that we can't avoid. What if the emotions of another person are inherently sinful? 
I don't mean misguided. I mean, our emotions are always to some degree misguided and uh, quite the unloving person you are if uh, you're just like Job's friends and you just come up alongside of them and tell them what they need to know in the midst of their suffering. That's awful. Totally presumptuous, totally unloving. But what if the emotions of another person are inherently sinful? For example, what if someone is rejoicing in their wrongdoing? Let's say that within the church, one person gets back at another person and they, quote unquote, deserved it. And you know this person and they're, they're really glad. Maybe, maybe someone mistreated another person, that person mistreated them back and they left the church. The person is feeling pretty high-minded about that. They, they needed to go and whatever else they're saying. They're rejoicing in wrongdoing. Are we to come alongside of them in that? Are we to come alongside of them just as a blanket statement, rejoice with them? They're rejoicing. Doesn't matter what they're rejoicing about. They're weeping. Doesn't matter what they're weeping about. Well, no, of course not. We know that. From the context, remember what we were told back in verse nine. Verse nine tells us that true love does what? It abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. So let me say it this way. You don't leave any of these other commands behind as you serve the latter ones. They're all a pack in your backpack. They're all together. You pull them all out. They all come out to bear on everything we do. And so we don't rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep without abhorring the evil and clinging to what is good. We do all of it at the same time with an eye towards their good. And let me make a final note here about rejoicing, about rejoicing with one another. The greatest obstacle to rejoicing with those who rejoice is this nasty thing called envy. Oh, you felt it. You felt it. I felt it. It's nasty. It's just wicked. And it's so wicked, we, we know it. As I said before, we know it immediately, and we, we really don't like it. We're believers. We really hate it, and it makes us feel incredibly undone on the inside, as it should. Envy. Someone else has something good, happen, doesn't make us feel very good. Because we want that for me. We want that for ourselves. Let me read you a quote from John MacArthur on this point. When another person's blessing and happiness is at our expense, at our expense, or when their favored circumstances or notable accomplishments make ours seem barren and dope, excuse me, barren and dull, the flesh does not lead us to rejoice, but tempts us to resent. Maybe you've accomplished something in your life and you, you, you're feeling really great about it or whatever and someone else comes along and, and they've got an accomplishment that just soars right above yours, makes yours look kind of puny. And all of a sudden, that happiness that you otherwise would have at their circumstances is gone, replaced with envy and resentment. This protects us against that, people of God. This protects us against envy. Where we are so busy rejoicing with the good in the lives of other people, there's just no room for us to covetously 
enviously consider it with resentment. We have hearts filled with sympathy, with fellow feeling, feeling with the other. As we finish up this morning, we come to our third point, and that is think humbly. We're going to look at verse 16 together. Think humbly. So we've seen that we are called to bless unexpectedly and to relate sympathetically. Now we are told to think humbly. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Everything about this verse screams humility. That's the big fat word right here, humility. It is very similar to what we find in Philippians 2, verses 2 to 4. Complete my joy, this is Paul writing to the Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. That's incredible. Where are you going to find that on planet Earth? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think that's a parallel for what we're looking at here. The first sentence literally reads, think the same thing towards one another. That's what it literally reads. Think the same thing towards one another. We are to have common thinking, but especially as it regards one another. To go back to verses three to eight, we are to have renewed minds as we think rightly about each other and ourselves. And this thinking is humble thinking. And here, this humility, this humble thinking shows up in two interrelated ways as we finish up this morning. Two interrelated ways that this humble thinking shows up. First, Paul says, do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly or those in a low position. Now this lowliness, let's talk about that for just a minute. This lowliness can take many forms. Many forms. Social, economic, educational, professional. It can take many different forms among people. And within the church, there are many ways that being lowly could show itself within the body of Christ. And what you find is there are different emphases in different places and geographical places and different uh, makeups of churches where, where this lowliness will be accentuated in different ways. But it shows itself up within the church. And when it does, when it does, Paul says here that we are to show zero partiality along these lines. Zero partiality. We do not engage with people as the lowly and the non-lowly. Even in our own minds, we simply engage with people as brothers and sisters in Christ, as future kings and queens purchased with Christ's precious blood, as sons and daughters of the living God. That's how we relate to one another. The second way this humble thinking shows up concerns how we see ourselves. 
And so Paul ends verse 16 with these words, never be wise in your own sight. We've seen this already before uh, in previous passages, this thinking wisely in your own sight. And I think this has, been, has to be connected in some ways with lowliness. So I want you to connect never be wise in your own sight with what we just talked about with lowliness. Yes, we may be tempted to push people away because they are lowly in material or social ways. So here we are doing church together. And there, we might be tempted as James rebukes the, the believers there. We might be tempted when, you know, the rich guy comes in to give him a nice cushy seat in the front and push the, the poor guy back to the, the corner or whatever. That was happening to the Christians that James was writing to. Or a, along some other socioeconomic line, we might be tempted to treat people or dismiss people or disassociate with people because of those forms of lowliness. But listen to this. We may also be tempted to push people away because they are lowly in wisdom, because they are lowly in how they think. They are perceived as less understanding, less knowledgeable, less learned and discerning in the things of God. They are, perhaps in this regard, the lowly. So to this, Paul says, take yourself off the pedestal. You who think you are so wise, take yourself off of that high position You've placed yourself, associate with the lowly, and don't think so highly of your own wisdom, of your own understanding, of your own knowledge, of your own thinking. And I think this also speaks to the opinionated person. Now let me just say this. The church is filled with opinions, but it doesn't have to be filled with opinionated people. Church is filled with opinions, but that is different than saying the church is filled with with opinionated people. I think those who are most opinionated and particularly, uh, as they see it, gifted in expressing their opinions, I think this has a particular word for them. Because it is in our opinionatedness uh, where we constantly have, the, we generate these thoughts superior as we see them and we must express them. It is in that that we are manifesting the the, the opposite of what Paul is saying. We are not, not being wise in our own eyes. We are being wise in our own eyes when we are opinionated, when we carry around an opinionated way of life, expressing, always needing to press it out there and let it be known. The irony is that this demonstrates a lack of wisdom. That's the, that's the irony. The irony is the opinionated person is opinionated most likely because they're very wise in their own sight. The irony is that in being so opinionated, they show how unwise they truly are. That's what we see with James. James chapter three, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Being able to be entreated, being teachable, malleable, open to understand the other position, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
To drive the point home, let me simply read Proverbs 18 too. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I can remember in college, every new college student, I think, runs into this. You go off to college and you learn all these new fancy words and you, you, you start to, you know, write some papers and you think you're an expert on the world. Uh, I think that, that tends to happen in, uh, in college. And so uh, you get, you know, I remember there were a group of guys, we were all uh, really serious about what we were doing in school and we would get together and we would all come home from college and we would just sit and have all these debates I mean, about all kinds of different things, just expressing our well-founded, learned, well-read opinions. I mean, we had a ton of them. And we were just lambasting each other with all of our opinions, just showing how foolish we were. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool is one who thinks himself wise, who is wise in his own eyes. So I want to close with one final implication here as we finish up this morning. The more we grow in the Lord, the more we grow in our understanding of his word, the more we will be tempted, listen to this, the more we will be tempted to lose sight of verse 16. We become puffed up. This is, by the way, this is natural. That's why Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 13. It is, it is natural because we begin to understand things better, we begin to know things better, and it naturally puffs up. But it supernaturally should not when governed by love and service to God. When I was, you know, going to seminary and learning about all these different preachers in church history, you know, you have your, your heroes. And one thing that always struck me was the, the ways in which some of my favorite people in church history were so incredibly humble. Just incredibly humble. I think it is striking to us that Moses is referred to as the meekest man, most humble man. I mean, of all the people in the Bible, of all the people in the Bible who could be wise in his own sight, man, none of us has anything on Moses, right? None of us. Moses Meek, humble, not wise in his own eyes. So as you grow in your knowledge, as you grow in living the Christian life, as you grow in your understanding of theology and of his word, as you grow in your understanding of the Christian life, and you see God's graces begin to grow in your life and, and become evidenced, plaster verse 16 on the front of your head. Plaster verse 16 from chapter 12 on the mirror in your bathroom. Put it on your steering wheel. Keep it at the front of your thinking. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is what it means to live as Christ in the world. What we're reading here is what it really looks like to live as Jesus. And what we find within the church is we all silence some things. 
I want to finish up here. We all silence some things. We all accentuate some things, and we all silence some things. We've got our champion things that we hold to. Some it's compassion. Some it's conviction. And others. But what we need to understand is that we're responsible for all of it. Not just the ones we like, the ones that match our personality the best, the ones that come the easiest to us, or the ones where our giftings match. We are called to evidence all of these. And that is why, with all of our hearts, we are to pray earnestly, consistently, that God would give us his grace. Because there is absolutely no way that we are going to live this Christian life apart from Christ's strength. And so we live in Christ's strength. We live under Christ's precious blood. And we go forth and we uphold all of these commands, especially those that conflict with our natural sentiments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Father, for guiding us in the Christian life. Lord, we, we have blind spots. Uh, each of us, individually, uh, collectively as a church, uh, culturally as those living in the state of Georgia in the United States, Lord, we have blind spots that we just don't see. We don't see them. Father, I pray that you would help us see more and more as we go through your word line by line and phrase by phrase that we would open our hearts to be receivers of all that you command of us, of all that you call us to, what comes natural and what does not, recognizing that all of it must be supernatural if it is to be lived out truly. Thank you, God, for being with us during this time. We pray that you would go with us into the Lord's Supper, that you would elevate our affections for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Lord, that we would, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that our hearts would, would, would freshly be grateful for his precious blood, that we would remember the blood that covers us, that we would remember the sacrifice that, that purchased eternal life for us, that we will not experience your judgment. We will not experience hell we will experience perfect joy, peace, love forever, no end because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Lord, that's what this supper is about. We pray that we would, we would enjoy all of that, celebrate all of that, that we would take all that in soberly and that it would spur us on to live as faithful Christians in the world. God, would you bind us together, bind our hearts together in Christian love for one another. We pray in Christ's name, amen.